This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we're excited to welcome Damien Eccles, whose best-selling memoir, Life After Death, describes how he was falsely convicted of three murders and spent nearly 18 years on death row. He's joined by performer and activist Henry Rollins for a conversation about prison life, holding on to memories, and how to stay hopeful in the worst of times. Thank you very much. Thanks for showing up tonight. Uh, thank you for showing up despite the inclement weather. Tonight we're going to talk to Damien, and I'm going to trust the fact that uh, I bet that everyone is very familiar with the circumstances that brought Damien to death row. And so a lot of that information, while still important, has been gone over again and again and again. And so what I would like to do tonight is to talk to Damien as someone who experienced a reality that all of us only entertain in nightmares or in books of fiction or by watching a crime television show from the comfort of our living room. It's a, it's a reality that defies imagination in that many of us fear incarceration. It's not even real. And so Damien is one who's had a very unique life and has had a lot of time to sit alone and think about things, and to think through things. And so tonight, our conversation will go to a man who's a very, very deep well, who's a very, very good writer, and has had a life that is about as unique as one could possibly imagine. So, Damon, I wanted to ask you, at what point, when you found yourself on death row, what point did the enormity and the reality of being on death row, death row occur to you? It's not an all-at-one-time realization. It sort of sinks in slowly. Uh, whenever they first arrest you, you're in such a state of shock and trauma at having your entire world, your entire life destroyed that you can't take in much of anything. You're just uh, moving along almost like a zombie wherever they lead you. You know, people used to say things to me all the time, like, if that were me, I would have been fighting and screaming. You know, I would have been in court screaming I didn't do it. Well, no, you wouldn't. Not after they beat the hell out of you the first time for opening your mouth. You just move along almost in a state of uh, being shell-shocked. I guess it, it sinks in in little ways. The first time that I really started to realize what was happening was whenever the jury comes back into the room. They had been out deliberating. They come back into the room, and I look over at them, and one of the women on the jury starts crying. And I knew right then I was screwed. Um, also, after you get to prison, it's like walking into the most cold, soulless, empty environment you can imagine. You know, you're not even looked at as a human being anymore. They take away your name and give you a number, dress you just like everyone else. To them, you're not even human, so they don't, they don't look at you that way. They don't treat you that way. If they're hurting you, it's not like they're hurting a person. 
they're just doing something almost to an inanimate object. And whenever you start to feel that and, and feel yourself being bombarded with that sort of energy, it starts to sink in really deeply then. Also, after I first got there, the guards, it was almost like it was nothing personal. They just decided they're going to welcome me to the neighborhood. So they beat the hell out of me for about 18 straight days. You realize when something like that's going on, you don't live in the world anymore. You've, you've gone someplace else. You've been sent someplace else where they can do anything they want to do to you, and there's nothing you can do about it. When did that occur to you as the new normal? After you had stabilized, after you know, the beatings became normal, the, you get used to the food. How does one go from planet Earth to death row and keep breathing? You said that the early days were almost like being a zombie, walking mm -hmm. around in a coma state. When you finally came out of that, what did you think of your environment? I was in prison probably five years before I started to really come out of that flight or fight response and to be able to function even semi-rationally as a human being anymore. Five years it took. Um, but even then, it, that's not a one-time thing either. You know, to take it in, for it to become the new normal is also a process because the horror and the atrocities and everything else you see keep building. You know, for in the beginning, you're dealing with things like uh, the food they're feeding you, just how horrendous that is, or the conditions you're living in, uh, the bugs, the rats, the heat, whatever it is. As soon as you start getting used to that, then they start executing people. So it's always like there's a horror, a next horror that comes along that's a little bigger than the last one. So you never really get used to it. And, and actually, after 18 years... The last two years that I was there were, were probably the worst in terms of brutality. There was a guard at another prison had been involved in a beating where he beat an inmate so bad he lost an eye. Um, a couple of the local newspapers started writing stories about it, so they realized they've got to get this guy out of this prison. Instead of firing him, they promote him to warden and move him to my prison. So even after 18 years, the horror and brutality was still escalating. As a young person going into the prison system, your concept of time, we, when we're young, we're often quite impatient. We want everything now. We want the music fast. We want it, everything we want. We want it right now. And we're, we can be quite demanding because we don't know any other way. If you have all the time in the world to sit and sit and sit, what is your consideration and your idea of time in that situation? You said the first five years was just kind of a waking, horrific mm -hmm. experience. But ten years in, has your, did your consideration of time, like a day goes by, did you, did you understand calendar days? Did you throw yeah. that out? Did you know what day it was? You don't throw it out at first. You know, it's, it's almost like the system is designed to treat you like a jackass that they're dangling a carrot in front of to keep moving forward. You know, when I first went to prison, the attorneys that I had said, we will have you out of here within two years. They told me that, and I immediately felt horror. I said, two years? I'm going to be here for two years? 
If they would have told me I was going to be there 18 years, I probably would have killed myself. Right. So, and everything is like that. You know, for example, whenever they started doing the DNA testing that eventually led to us getting out of prison, whenever the issue first came up, I asked the attorneys, okay, how long is it going to be before this is finished? They said six months. Six months went by, and I said, okay, I haven't seen any results on this testing yet. How much longer is it going to be? They said, well, we had this snag or that snag. It's going to be another six months. Six months goes by. Again, they tell me six months. They t kept telling me six months for eight years. So eventually what happened for me, I think a lot of people go insane because of that, the people in prison, because they do focus on the days, the calendars, the years. For me, what happened was I, I figured out that I had to start shaping some sort of life for myself beyond thinking of a day when I was maybe going to be outside those walls again because that's the thing that makes your life torture. You're already in this external hell, but when you're constantly focusing on the future on a day when you think you may end up being out of here, then it becomes an internal hell. Then it becomes exactly what you're talking about. You want it now. You have to come up with something that keeps you focused in the moment. However bad the moment is, you have to stay focused on it or you're going to lose your mind. So let's... Let's talk about this for a moment. The idea of hope and hopelessness or a profound lack of hope and something that lies beyond hope and hopelessness. It seems to me that you would entertain both hope and hopelessness at the same time. Six months, I can do that because it may, it may be you can get out. But at the same time, if you've had a previous six months where the carrot was snatched away, there is a lack of confidence because it didn't work the first time. Mm -hmm. So in your waking state, you're entertaining both heaven and hell at the same mm -hmm. time. And so was there an evolution to get past those two and get to another level of consciousness, something beyond hopelessness and hope? I think what sort of starts to happen at first is it's almost like you're on a roller coaster. You know, every time something comes up, you know, for example, say DNA testing comes in, or a new eyewitness has, comes forth, or somebody comes up and says, I lied on the stand. I want to tell the truth now. You start thinking, okay, this is it. This, I'm finally going home. Surely now, when somebody sees the absurdity of this, surely someone is going to step in and do something about it. But they don't. You know, something happens and another year goes by, another two years go by, and eventually it gets to the point where I would call home and Lori would tell me about some huge development in the case, and I would say, oh, okay, and then I would go back to reading because it gets to the point where it burns you out inside. Right. You know, it's like almost like living in an adrenaline rush. And you have to let go of it. You have to move beyond it. You have to, it is. That's what it is. It's going beyond hope and hopelessness. You know, if you live in this constant state of hope, you're wasting your days. You're wasting the time that you have there alive. Maybe a day is going to come when you're outside again. Maybe it's not. Maybe they're going to kill you. But if you spend every single moment looking towards the future, then you don't enjoy what you do have. The hopelessness, you have to move beyond that too. That's part of what the jaded quality is. You, it, it's a little bit of hopelessness. You start to um, feel that there is never, ever going to be a way out of this situation. There's never going to be a light. In the first year, I was in jail for a year before I went to trial. I felt that so much that I actually tried to kill myself. 
I tried to commit suicide before I ever even went to trial just because it reaches a point when you're so hopeless you can't see a light out of the situation. You can't see any way. You feel damned. It's never, ever going to get better. So you do have to let go of both of those things. Were there times where you would, in a certain way, go insane, lose vast amounts of time, come back from that, and then lose yourself again from repetition, from staring at a wall, you know, basically going crazy, getting tired of that, coming back to the real world, being horrified of that, and then going off, you know, where your mind becomes a, some narcotic, a place to go. Uh, was there years of checking out? Yes, uh, in a very, very deliberate way. I would see people in there that it wasn't deliberate. People that were just driven insane by the situation. You know, I, I would see a guy that, for example, he's fine one day, the next day he snaps and starts screaming that the devil is in his cell and he'll beat the walls until both his fists are just busted and bloody. He didn't have control over that. For me, it was um, almost a way to keep growing as a person. You know, there's almost no experience in prison. You're locked inside a concrete box for years, for decades. Nothing changes unless you change it yourself. So I would do things to myself to uh, deliberately force some sort of change in consciousness. Like? For a period of about a year, I ran for hours every day, ran in place. I was trapped in this tiny cell. So I would read and run until my feet would bleed and I'm leaving bloody feet print on the floor. Or one time for Lent, you know, I'm far from the most devout Catholic, but I decided, okay, for Lent this year, I'm not going to eat for 40 days. For 40 days, I'm going to give up food in its entirety. Or meditation. You know, it, it, I got to the point where by the time that I'd gotten out of prison, I was sitting meditation anywhere from five to seven hours a day. Reading also. You know, you can force yourself to sit down and go through five, six, seven books a week sometimes, doing nothing but reading from sunup to sundown constantly just to take in new information, to change the way you're thinking about things. And that would be in a way, a way to get some maturity and a way to personally evolve. Because as you said, you're living in a locked groove. Mm -hmm. You're living in a situation that is so stable to the point of you might feel like a non-entity. Yeah. So you would have to do something, even perhaps the pain of the running was just a way to stay kind of in, in some moment. Mm -hmm. When you would get calls from Lori and she would tell you, here's what's going on, you know, here, six months or the attorneys would talk to you, what was your awareness of what was happening on the outside on behalf of you and Jason and Jesse? And, and did you understand what a global thing it had turned into? No, I, I didn't. Um, you know, I would call Lori and she would tell me things that were going on. She would tell me things that people were doing. For the most part, you hear it and you think, oh, that's great. But then as soon as you hang the phone up, you have to go right back to just trying to survive through this day. You have to go right back to fighting just to make it through till tomorrow, to make it through mentally, to make it through physically, to make it through emotionally. So you hear these things, but in a lot of ways, the outside world seems like it is a million miles away, sure. almost like it doesn't even exist. You know, it's like 
reading about Shangri-La or something that you're thinking, yeah, that's, that's fine for the people there, but I'm never actually going to be part of that. I'm never actually going to see that. There were a few exceptions. One was uh, the Voices for Justice concert that they did in, in Little Rock. A, a whole bunch of people came together to do this concert to raise awareness uh, in the state of Arkansas and all over the world about what was going on. Henry was part of it, Johnny Depp, Patti Smith. Well, it was that for me, that was one of the things that became really, really palpable. When that was going on, you know how you can feel it in the air when you're walking down the street and it's the day before Christmas Eve and you can literally feel Christmas in the air? It has a texture, it has a denseness. You can feel it touching your skin. That's what that concert was like to me. So it, you would have things that huge that it's like, oh my God, I can't breathe. I can feel something happening. There's a lot of other things that come and go and make no impression at all. I am loath to put myself into any of this, me never having been on death row. But it was a very odd experience for the years and years and years and years and years that I was on the outside, a free person, working on your behalf. And I would get your letters, and I would come back from tour, and there's lots of mail going through. You know, I don't get letters as much as I used to before the Internet, but there's a, a fair pile of them. And it's from whoever, and you have a very distinct way of writing. You're, you're just, just your, your handwriting. And there's that letter, and my stomach would clench up because I want to read it, but I kind of don't. Yeah. And don't take that the wrong way. I'm sure you can understand. <laughs> yeah. You know, that like, well, this can't be fun because this is, uh, and we on the outside were flailing away. And when you'd get those phone calls, you know, it's in six months or uh, the attorneys would talk to you or Lori would talk to you. I would often get CC'd on some of this information as well. And then the six months would go by and you'd have this, um, you want the Hollywood ending. Mm-hmm. Like they're going to find the guy and that thing's going to happen. Yeah. And, the, it's all, and, and I'm sure you were going through that. But on the outside, it was very difficult to think of you and, and Jesse and, and Jason and then go to, to bed after yeah. eating a meal you cooked in your own kitchen. And so the idea of, of freedom is very, very interesting in that we have it when we, we can leave this building anytime we want. And so can you these days. But you have to find your freedom wherever you are. And so you had to do that. And it seems to me, besides like meditation, Buddhism, you found that through writing. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about, you know, you are an author. Your book is going to be in this library. It is already. And so let's talk about you, the writer. What did writing start out for you to be? And what did it become? And what is it now? And what does it mean to you? What, what part of your life uh, does it, does it fill, fulfill? Well, I started writing, I guess, when I was about 12 years old, uh, mostly poetry in the very early days. And it was something for me always. Writing seemed like a way to make the world a slightly more magical place. You know, it, it takes away a little of uh, the mundane, the mediocre, the monotonous side of life, both writing and reading did those things for me. You know, I grew up when I was a kid in complete and absolute poverty. We had nothing, nothing. 
we didn't even have things like movie theaters or, or anything like that. So for me, reading was the only escape I had. It was the only thing that took me out of this world that I had grown to hate. So I realized what an incredible thing books could be. And part of me wanted to be part of that. You know, even while I was writing Life After Death, it took me about seven, maybe eight years to write the whole thing. Even while I was writing it, I was doing half of it for me. You know, half of it is, is like an act of catharsis. It's like a, I'm recording and working my way through what's happening to me as it's happening to me. But at the same time, part of me also feels maybe one day these words will mean something to someone other than me the way someone else's words meant something to me at one point to help me get through hard times in my life. So I always hoped for that. And coming from the, the world that I did, it almost seemed like a thing that was far too good to be true at times. You know, even whenever we finally found Blue Rider Press and, and we make the deal and they say, okay, we're going to publish your book, part of you still can't accept that, can't believe that it's actually going to happen. Right. You know, even, even, you know, we get off of planes and I'll go into bookstores just to see if it's there, just to be able to look at it on the shelf. And you never get past that feeling of, oh my God, it's actually real. In a way, writing helped save my life. When you, you said something very interesting there. When you, nowadays you go into a bookstore just to see if the book is on the shelf. In a way, it sounds to me like you are still trying to actualize yeah. your sheer physicality in the world. I, oh, definitely. And that would be perhaps a situation of if you're incarcerated looking at potentially death, a, a government-sanctioned murder, mm -hmm. that you feel non-existent. And yeah. so perhaps the writing was a way to be alive, stay alive, and to project life. What I'm asking basically is, it, did it bring you out of basically feeling like a ghost? In some ways it did, and in some ways it made me feel even more like a ghost, but in a good way. You know, the way you're describing it, when they take away your name and give you a number, whenever they force you to get the same haircut everybody else has and dress you in the exact same clothes, that's the bad kind of ghost. But there's also, for me, a good kind that, that's almost impossible for me to articulate. But writing, a lot of times what I would do is when you're locked up for that long with no sort of, no sort of external stimulation at all, you start to lose things. You start to forget things. And I always use the example of, of food. You know, by the time I got out, I remembered that pizza had been my favorite food, but I couldn't remember what it tasted like anymore. And there were so many other things that I was scared to death of losing. The only thing I had that I cherished that I wanted to hold on to were the years before I came to prison. So I would write those out and just think about the tiniest detail to keep from losing it. Just, you know, for example, like the way the doorknob of my grandmother's front door would feel on a cold winter day when I would put my hand on it. And I would write that out, almost to engrave it in my brain to keep from losing it. Did you write those kind of things over and over again? Oh, almost yeah. Almost like a mantra or a prayer? Yes. Almost like writing them from different angles, even. Um, writing them from how it felt internally, writing from them, writing about it, how it would be to see it, how it would feel to 
hear it, feel it, taste it, whatever it is, I would write about all these different things and do it over and over and over again because it was all I had. You know, it was almost like taking out your most valued possessions and then turning them over and over and you look at them and then you say, okay, I'm going to put it back in the box for today and then tomorrow you get it back out and start looking at it again. And that's why I would write about it in several different ways. Justice, perhaps philosophically, some would say is society's desire to keep things balanced, to keep things right, which is a, a moral judgment. What is your idea of justice having been un, so radically mistreated by it? I think it's really easy to think of it as a balance. You know, we always see Lady Justice holding the scales, things like that. But in actuality, there are many things that can't be balanced out. You know, for example, say someone does kill someone else. There's nothing you can ever do to that person, nowhere you can ever send them that's going to make those scales balance out. It's not going to happen. So I think what we have to focus on more as a society, the only way we're going to get anywhere, you know, it's... Uh, in the situation where I was in, I would see people driven insane all the time. I was in prison for almost 20 years. And in that time, I never, ever saw one single shred of any sort of rehabilitation program or anything else. And you see these people in society that always say we want to be tougher on crime, tougher on criminals. Well, I think the thing you have to keep in mind is almost everyone who goes to prison is going to get out one day. You know, very, very few people are executed. Very, very few people spend life in prison without ever seeing the outside of those walls. So it's, I mean, they're going to be out. They're going to be in your churches. They're going to be in your schools. They're going to be in your workplace. So it's probably not a good idea to drive them insane before you let them back out again. What has to be done is we have to stop thinking of it as an us versus them sort of thing. It has to be done, it has to be looked at where the reason you put money and time and energy into actual real habilitation is to help yourself. Don't look at it as helping a murderer, helping a thief, helping a rapist. See it as this person is going to be back out in my world one day. Therefore, I want to see that they're changed. I don't want to see that they're driven insane or whatever it is and then come back and, and screw my world up even more. I want to do whatever I can right now to make my world a better place. Look at it as, as helping yourself, not helping someone else. And I think that's really what has to be done before there's going to be any change. You bring up something interesting with all of that. It, it makes me think that certain demographics, certain people of an economic strata are basically targeted for a certain way of life. Over the years, you know, going through all the documentation, all this stuff, you know, reading about you, stuff that Lori would send me, that the attorneys would send me, you know, for years. It's, it occurs to me when I, when I saw the, you know, the, the documentaries, you watch these and you're like, that couldn't happen in New York City. And that's what I always say to myself, and I always used New York City, in that you just, too many people would go like, I don't think so, man. We're going to wreck this place if you try that again. Where in other parts of America, justice is a different idea. The idea of law enforcement and who it favors yeah. and who it has prejudice against it seems to me eventually it's a racket mm -hmm. it, it is people are making money in that that uniform that you wore someone made it 
someone got a profit. The mm-hmm. meals you ate, no matter yes. how deplorable, that was a for-profit yes. notion. So yes. the prison industrial complex is not anything that you're unfamiliar with. But what I'm, what I'm wondering is if your time in prison perhaps made you think differently about what society should be imprinting upon its young people in that if you, you'll go to a state and you'll say, Which, how, how are you handling your crime problem? Well, we're handling it just fine. Well, what are you doing? We're building more prisons. Uh, you're mm-hmm. addressing the effect mm-hmm. because you're making too much money off mm-hmm. of it so you don't want the cause to go away because right. it's a revenue stream. Yes. And so you saw this, you know, people you did time with who were perhaps, I don't know the right way to say it that's not offensive, perhaps mentally challenged, mm-hmm. perhaps were in need of care and they acted out because they did not have the right medication and they, their behavior brought them to prison. Mm-hmm. What would you do differently if you could talk to a governor, uh, if you could talk to the president about what you would change, about how the society conducts and comports itself, having seen what you've seen, like where people end up after bad behavior. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think, I mean, the, most of the people you just listed off, not the president, but on state levels. Yeah, I, I would think more like a governor. I think they're the problem. You know, for example, before I went to prison, I never really thought about how these people get these jobs, who they are, or anything else. You know, we watch TV shows and we, we're fed this idea that prosecutors, attorney generals, judges, they all get these jobs because they somehow deserve them or earn them or they're moral people who are trying to protect society in some sort of way. We don't get told that they're politicians. They're elected to these positions, just like senators, just like congressmen. Therefore, their number one priority will always be winning that next election. They're going to do whatever it takes to do that. They're going to do whatever it takes to make themselves look tough on crime. and Like there's a definite villain out there, not a mentally challenged person, but a definite villain, and that we're protecting you from this villain. Therefore, vote for us in the next election. Right. You know, and that's part of why it took so long for us to get out of prison. You've got the prosecutor in my case running for Congress. You've got the judge running for Senate. You've got the attorney general running for governor. You had the, the governor running for president. None of these people were going to step in and say, we screwed up. We sentenced an innocent man to death. We allowed a murderer to walk the streets for the last 20 years because they know if they do, they're going to lose that next election. Or be shown, you know, you, you know uh, how fragile and eggshell thin the male ego can be. Mm-hmm. An elected official having to say, yeah, we, we screwed that up. And uh, I'm sure you've seen enough prosecutors. They never admit when they're wrong. Even when DNA evidence springs someone, they're like, nope. Yes. That guy, he, he, she should be in prison. They never, they'll never give ground. Never. Explain to, to people here, because it's, it's kind of confusing. Um, the Alford plea, which, and, and for those of you who might not understand, the, the boys, the boys, the men, uh, 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 well, boys when I first heard about them, but um, Jason and Damien and Jesse were let loose from prison on a thing called the Alford plea. And when you read about it, when you read what it is, it's very, very hard to define. And our inner Shakespeare and our sense of walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it is what it is, tells us it's the way men save face. 
let someone out of prison, but never admit that they're wrong. Basically, it seems to me it is, it's a punt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's them getting out and not having to say they're wrong. So it all goes away. They still look like the, the enforcers of law and the, the, the bringers of moral rectitude, and you're still tainted mm -hmm. uh, or sprayed with this patina of dubious innocence. Yeah. And so if you can explain in layman's terms the Alfred plea. I've tried and I, I've got it right a few times and most of the time I, I, I almost get there and then I, I, I lose something. Well, it's really, it, it's really hard to, to describe. It's almost Kafka-esque. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically saying you're accepting this guilty plea but still maintaining your innocence. So it's like saying, I didn't do this. I'm innocent, but I'm taking your guilty plea. And I think really what it all comes down to, I think the, th the thing that just sort of embodies what it's for more than anything else is whenever we started talking about this deal, the prosecutor's first and only question was, will he sign a waiver giving up his rights to sue the state of Arkansas? Right. And, and to them, that's what it comes down to. We have a documentary coming out in December called West of Memphis where the prosecutor actually sits down and does an interview. And he says in this interview, I mean, he just comes right out and says it. He says his big concern, his main concern in doing this deal was the fact that me, Jason, and Jesse could have collectively sued the state for about $60 million. Right. He had to do whatever he could do to make sure that didn't happen. Is it a situation where, you know, for you, some of you might not know, there was hopefully going to be another trial, and even that was, that got delayed. Yeah. And I guess in discovery, the prosecution would be able to see the new evidence that would be brought to bear mm -hmm. by the defense, right. which, in, and this is just me speculating after Lori gave me this interesting phone call a couple of weeks before you got out uh, last year, it said to me, they're afraid of what you all were bringing. They're going to be shown for, uh, well, um, an injustice. Mm -hmm. liars, and perhaps criminal activity, uh, suppression of evidence, uh, hell, lying. And, and so it was, again, the punt. Tell us how, when you got the phone call, what was told to you, and what went through your mind? Because it seems to me you're looking at a trial, and it might not go your way. Mm -hmm. You know the, evidence, the new evidence that you all were going to bring in was so strong, strong enough to get you out. They feared it. And this is what I'm getting at. And so, but even you, you lost one trial, why is exactly. all incredibly possible to lose another? Had you lost another, was it very possible that everything would be over with and you would be looking at possible lethal injection? Mm -hmm. Okay, so when you're looking at the rest of your life, in comes this phone call that might not even seem believable. Talk us through how that, how that happened, what you thought when you got the phone call, and then we'll go from there. The whole time I was in prison, Lori and I had a very regimented life, a, a routine that we followed every single day. First thing we did every single morning is I would get up and call her at 8 o'clock. So I call her at 8 o'clock one morning, and she says, I need to talk to you about something really important. And I was like, oh, what did I fuck up? <laughs> <laughs> What did I do? Um, and she says, then she starts explaining to me, 
your attorney, Steve Braga was his name, met with the prosecutor yesterday, and they started talking, even my, my heart starts beating fast even now, you know, sure. thinking about it again. It couldn't even have seemed real. No, it didn't. Okay. You know, she says, the prosecutor said, you can go home this week if you plead guilty. And I didn't know what to do. I felt, uh, you know, my first instinct was really, by that point, I was dying. I was dying in there. I'd been in there almost 20 years. I was losing my eyesight. Every year that went by, I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. I, I weigh 60 pounds more right now than I do the, did the day I walked out of prison at this time last year. So my first honest reaction was, tell them I'll say any fucking thing they want me to say yeah. as long as they let me go home. But she went on. She said, he told them you're not going to do that. And my stomach dropped. I thought, oh, God, I'm going to die here. This is it. And she said, so then they came back and said, well, what about this? And that's when they started talking about the Alfred plea. And it was like I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It can't seem real. No, it that didn't. You, that you could walk out in what, in seven to ten days? Yes. He, basically, what it came down to is we had new DNA evidence. We had new eyewitnesses. We had new forensic experts that had come in to say that the prosecution's case was bullshit. Uh, the the Two out of three of the victim's families were on our side doing whatever they could to get the case opened. So the prosecutor, what he says in essence is, okay, the Arkansas Supreme Court has ruled there's going to be another hearing. They're finally going to hear all this evidence. You'll win. When we go back to court, you'll win. But we're going to drag it out as long as we can. We're going to ask for extensions. We're going to appeal every single decision the judge makes. We can drag this out for another five, another ten years. Or you can sign this agreement and you can go home before the week is up. For me, by then, I didn't even care. You know, I would have signed whatever the hell they put in front of me. I was just tired. I was worn out. I was weak. I was breaking down in every way a human being can be broken down. I didn't know we were going to be released. The stipulation was that me, Jason, and Jesse, all three had to agree to this. I said yes. Jesse said yes. Jason said no. Jason said, I'm not admitting to one damn thing that I didn't do. I'm going to stay here until they admit that they screwed up, until they admit that they screwed me. I knew by that point, Jason wasn't as closely connected to the case as I was. You know, his attorneys didn't communicate with him very effectively, a lot of things. I knew he was still living in this really naive state where he thinks the politicians are all going to get up one day and say, okay, we screwed up, we're sorry, you can go home now, the door's open. I knew it wasn't going to happen. I knew we were all three going to die in that prison before they admitted they made a mistake. So everybody kept talking to Jason for a week before we got out. We thought he would probably end up eventually taking the deal. We thought we were probably going to get out, but we did not know we were going to get out until the evening before we did. They came and got us, took us to the county jail. That's when it, it became real. That's when we knew it was actually happening. But for that last week, that for me was almost worse than the other 18 years all put together. It was a living hell. Not, I mean, seeing freedom, seeing peace, seeing being with your loved ones, seeing 
are real life that close in front of your face but being scared that they're going to snatch it away at any second and knowing they can I didn't sleep I didn't eat all I did literally for the last week before I got out was pace that cell back and forth almost 24 hours a day by the time we went into that courtroom on the day we got out I was so tired and so worn out that I was just doing whatever I could to keep putting one foot in front of the other and get somewhere that I could finally rest I got the phone call from Lori I was at my office she called she said do you have a minute I said for you of course and she said uh, there's you know, something has happened and she explained she said it looks like they're going to get out and I said no because it you're doing the time in prison I'm on the outside but even for me I had gotten tired of like because I kept hearing delay 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 and I was in year 10 with you guys as far as being emotionally involved and again don't take this the wrong way and don't take it the wrong way I don't think I'm anything in that I'm on the outside but you can't help it as a human being with emotions you are kind of along for the ride and you become it becomes personal like you and I write each other and I'm, it's a thing that's been on my mind since I don't know whenever it was I found out 2000 whenever and w when she told me that my legs almost went out from under me I didn't believe it I almost thought I was getting out of because <laughs> I just didn't believe it I'm like right. really and she kind of explained but all I could hear was like a roar in my ear she talked and I just was like uh-huh this isn't happening it can't be that simple I just thought there's gonna be like this dramatic trial and delay 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 appeal 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 as they just you know, these cowards mm -hmm. and all of a sudden uh, she lays this on me I'm like uh, and she said don't tell anyone I said well can I I tell my assistant Heidi who you know basically executive produced the record that we went and mm -hmm. did she said yeah, of course so I hung up the phone and I staggered into Heidi's office and I said here's what's going down and we both kind of sat there and looking at each other like keep you have to keep breathing I mean we were just like oh that's right I was in shock a few hours later I have to go into a studio and do vocals for a, as a favor to the bass player who played on the benefit record we made for you and uh, he's doing a solo record hey come in and sing with me I'm like sure of course so I went in there and he said so what's been going on I'm like oh you know nothing because I can't <laughs> I can't say anything because she told me not to say anything and I'm good at keeping secrets and this guy you know uh, he he played so hard you know this guy Marcus he toured the world and played these songs for you and for the other two I mean he's so committed he's such a good guy and I just I'm looking right at him like I've got a secret <laughs> <laughs> and, but I, I'm told not to tell and, and like that's fine he'll find out yeah. And so I sat, Heidi and I sat on this, and I left to do some shows in Europe. And I was at the Edinburgh Festival, the Fringe Fest, it's fantastic. Second, I have a few shows at a place called the Queen's Hall. And at one point, it's almost sound check. I'm jet lagging, so I'm cross-eyed from, it's just awful. And so I'm waking up like, okay, I have to go do a show. And I log on, check some mail. And in my company's site, there's like 30 to 40 emails, all of them ecstatic. Dude, no way, you're not gonna believe this. And obviously you I said it it, it happened. Because I said nothing to anyone. <laughs> Cause, cause she said not to. And so all of a sudden 
it, the, the eagle landed. And everyone wrote me, like, are you watching this? And I went to CNN.com, and there you are, and the other two, and the whole thing. And I went numb. I'm like, it, it happened. I'm like, it happened, and I have to go do a show now. And so, as I, as I watched, and this is funny, we can laugh about it now, because you said you were so exhausted. I thought you were copping an attitude, <laughs> because you got, you know, you look, as you look right now, this is, I guess, seems to be your look, which says, <laughs> rave promoter, <laughs> semi-legit manager, who's probably can't come back to a few towns because he might get a, an arm broken. I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, you look fine to me. I'm just saying, you, but and you were at that press conference and Jason is going to be a good prosecutor one day or a great, you know, defense lawyer because he's just like bolt upright, just I'm here. Finally, I'm an innocent man and he's so righteous. And you were like, like <laughs> freedom. Yeah. And, uh, and you were probably just exhausted. But I'm like, look at this attitude. Look how, how cool he is in one of the most unreal moments of his young life. And you're just kind of like, you look like you could have took it or left it. I must say, I thought it was very cool. Now we know it's just exhaustion. Um, but no, no, but you played it well, sir. I mean, you were very, very articulate. And I was amazed how collected you were. Like, you, you had perhaps been waiting for this moment. You weren't going to yell. You were just going to be, like, very articulate, as, as you always seem to be. So let's talk about that. You have returned back to planet Earth. And while we, uh, it's fiction for us to entertain the idea of eight minutes in prison, uh, 18 years, especially as an innocent person, we just can't fathom it. I think I probably speak for almost everyone here. You can tell us, but we're still like, uh-huh. It's just, it's the strangest thing. It would be equally as strange to us for someone to re-enter Earth. It'd be like someone coming back from uh, a rotation in Afghanistan or Iraq, or as they used to say in the Vietnam, or coming back to the world, mm -hmm. where uh, it's so different. So let's talk, because this is fascinating to me. You, this man who's come back onto planet Earth from this, this awful place, this, this, so one of Dante's levels of hell, and you come back to the real world. Talk about that day, and we'll, kind of, we'll talk more about nowadays, but let's, let's talk about that moment, the, the 72 hours from that press conference onwards. Take us through that. We left, uh, we left the courtroom and went straight to the... Well, before you do that, let's talk about the courtroom. How did they dismiss you or free you? What was that like? We wore chains all the way up until a few minutes before we walked in in front of the audience. I mean, we were still wearing shackles. We were still wearing handcuffs. The judge comes in and says, okay, take those off of them. But even there, even on the day we're getting out, we're still handcuffed and shackled like a chain gang whenever they bring us into the courtroom. So the judge comes in and says, you can go ahead and take those off now. So they take them off, and that was the first time that I had been in a room with other people without being chained hand and foot in almost 20 years. So it was a really weird experience, just being able to move freely while other people were around you. Um, whenever they took us into the courtroom, the only thing the cop said to me, the head cop said, if I say get down, just drop to the floor, and don't get up until I say everything's okay. He says, we're not expecting any problems, but if we do, 
just do that and everything will be fine. Explain that. Are we talking about someone in the peanut gallery who exactly. might want to try and kill you? Exactly. Yeah. How did that feel when he said that? I was used to it by then. Right. You know, it's, it's all the way back from the time I went to trial. You know, I had to wear a bulletproof vest when I was going to trial in yeah. case, you know, someone decided they were going to shoot me or something. Not to mention 18 years in prison. You know, you can be killed any day of the week there for a pack of cigarettes. So it, it sort of loses its, I don't know, um, it doesn't seem that big a deal after a while. Right. So Your life cheapens. Yeah. 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 So we go into the courtroom. They usher all three of us in. Now, before we went in, we had to rehearse what we were going to say. And I was so, like I said, I was so tired by that point that I couldn't even remember like three sentences. So they wrote it down for me so that I could just look down and read it whenever the judge asked me what I wanted to say. So they wrote that down. I carried it into the courtroom. I can't tell you one single thing that anyone in that courtroom said up until the point whenever they told me, okay, read your statement. Because I, I couldn't take it in. It was just, it was too much. It was too big. It was too hard. Um, I read that statement. The judge said, okay, I'm going to keep everyone else here for a few minutes. I have something I want to say while we get these guys out of here. So I didn't know what he said until a few months later. We leave the courtroom I immediately meet Lori in the back. Eddie Vedder's there with us. He sweeps us out. We go straight to the Department of Motor Vehicles in Mark Tree, Arkansas. Because when you're locked up for that long, you don't have any, any form of ID at all. So they took, took us there to get us ID cards so that we could fly. We could take a plane. Uh, we had a rooftop party that night over in Memphis. It was really surreal and bizarre you know it was at this Peabody Hotel and the Madison Hotel there were two of them and it was so weird because when I was a kid I would see commercials for the Peabody on TV all the time famous yes yeah. and I would think that's where rich people stay that's where people who matter stay one day I want to at least walk in there and look around and, and see what it looks like inside there and here we were having this huge party there to celebrate the fact that we were out of prison we go in and whenever we get there Eddie has already Eddie and his assistant had already ordered food to have it in the room whenever we got there people always ask what's the first meal you ate whenever you got out of prison and it was everything pretty much you know <laughs> As soon as I walked into the room, there's a table sitting there. It's got like hamburgers and grilled cheese and wine and Diet Coke and salads and all this stuff on it. And I just started eating what people were handing to me, you know, because I was so tired by that point, I didn't even care anymore. You know, the last thing on my mind was food. Um, we had a party that night. Lori's family was there. Lots of people, like the people who put the websites together that had been trying to get us out of prison over the years, they were there. We're standing on top of this hotel looking out across the, the Mississippi River, which I had thought about so, so many times over the years while I was locked up. Because to me, that river always represented my life, my childhood. I grew up on that river. I spent my entire life next to that river. So we're on this hotel that I'd always wanted to see next to this river that was so symbolic for me. And there are all these people around and, and Eddie Vedder and Natalie Maines 
pull out guitars and start doing like an impromptu concert right there on top of the roof. I didn't stay long. I stayed for a few minutes and I went in and I went to bed. The very next morning, we got on a plane with Eddie and flew to his place in Seattle. I was sick as a dog, uh, you know, just from the stress and the trauma and the shock. I've been in solitary confinement for 10 years by this point, And I go from that to just being thrown out in the world again. And I, I wasn't ready for it. So I would lay down and try to sleep because I was so exhausted, so tired I couldn't even think anymore. But I was so wired because I was out that I couldn't fall asleep. So in a lot of ways, those first couple of days were misery. They were kind of hellish. I was probably in shock and trauma for three months after I got out. Only gradually over time did I start to come back to myself a little more. So in the last several months, I mean, you've been out, uh, be a year this August of this year, so it's been a year and a few months that mm -hmm. you've been out. Yes. How's, the, how's it been? How, how has the last year of your life been? In that, well, after you have a, like three months of what the hell is planet Earth like? Yeah. And then you, you, you normalize a little. I mean, you're a waking being. You're aware of things. And, you know, you can take a walk if you like. So you, you stabilize to a certain degree and normalize. So the last 12 months of your life, what has it been like? Incredibly bizarre. You know, people expect you to just be happy and jubilant that you're out of prison. I don't think most people comprehend the level of anxiety and stress and just malfunction you get whenever you come back out into the world. It's... It really is too much to take. Not only that, but I went straight from prison to New York City. You know, <laughs> which would, it would have been a shock in and of itself, you know, just coming from Arkansas to New York. Yeah. This was the, really, this was the first city I'd ever been in in my life. The first really big city. I'd seen Memphis, but, you know, that's nothing compared to this. Yeah. We come here, and I always thought, you know, the only thing I knew about New York was what I saw in, in TV shows or in books or something. And I thought, it's not the place for me. I'm not going to like it. I don't want to go there. And we came here, and I absolutely fell head over heels in love with this place. You know, there are times whenever I would stand on the sidewalk and, and almost start gasping for breath because I can't even believe what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing. It was feeding me almost after I felt like I had starved to death for so long. But it hasn't been easy. You know, whenever we left Arkansas, we had nothing. I didn't have a penny in my pocket. We didn't, I didn't have a suit of clothes to change into. We had nowhere to go. So if it wasn't for people catching us like a safety net, I honestly have no idea what we would have done whenever we left there. I was talking to Lori over, the, you know, it's, it's interesting tonight when we got together. I... If you, you won't take this the wrong way. I've been seeing your wife for a long time. <laughs> In that she and I are so familiar with each other after all the years uh, when we were together tonight before the show. I was like, you know, like, Lori, hey, oh, yeah, Damien, I, I heard about you. Um, but I said to her, I, I said, I think Damien would love New York. All those books, all those lights on, all those switched on people. You know, of course, the sheer DB level of it will take some adjusting. But I said, man, once he gets the hang of it, and I said, please never let him go more south than, or, you know, south of maybe uh, DC. I mean, like, just never, maybe leave the lower half alone. No offense to anyone who's in the, the lower half uh, or, or, um, <laughs> 
I'm not looking for a fight. Uh, <laughs> what they used to call back in the 60s the Southern Bloc, the ones who uh, uh, protested the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I'm not saying that's you. I just said, I said, never go back there again. Please yeah. never take him. She said, yeah, why would you want to? I mean, I would be afraid for you down there, just like one lunatic. Well, you know, it was a weird thing because, like I said, we came straight to New York. So when we were here, I'm thinking oh my God, the entire world has completely changed. Sure. You know, you come here and nobody even looks at you twice. Occasionally you have somebody come up to you on the street and say, I followed your case for years, I'm so glad you're out, uh, wanting to shake your hand. But for the most part, people here don't care who you are, what you look like, where you're going, what you're doing, nothing. They don't give a damn. But at the same time, there's something, you know, so insanely magical about this place that I thought the entire world is the opposite of everything that I knew back then. Everything has changed. Then for Christmas last year, we went back to visit Lori's family in West Virginia. And we went to see like their daughters playing high school basketball games. And I realized, no, it hasn't changed. <laughs> A lot of it is still exactly like it was 20 years ago when I went into prison. You know, these people now, yes, they might want to come up and say something to me just because they saw me on TV or something like that. But these are the exact same people that 20 years ago would have been wanting to murder me, would have looked at me like I was shit. So there's a lot that hasn't changed. You know, I, I tour all over America year in, year out, and all through this, uh, I would be doing those morning radio shows. I'm on a tour bus, you know, cross-eyed from exhaustion, 6 a.m. with... Those kind of awful radio shows where it's like three people, one guy with a normal name and then two people with a, it's like, you know, <laughs> Keith, uh, Bucket, and Roadkill. And usually I do them and they're fairly friendly to me because I've done them all of the shows like 80 times before. But whenever the, uh, I was you know, campaigning upon your behalf, I'd get woken up, all right, here's your first of like four phoners today. And they sit, put you on hold for a few minutes before they, they walk you in. Well, we've got this Satanist. Uh, he's about to talk to us, and he's, he hangs out with people in prison. He's, he hangs out with murderers. And we're going to talk to him right now. <laughs> well, good morning, Henry Rawls, Mr. <laughs> Satan. <laughs> Which is a, a heavy proposition at like 6, 10 in the morning as you're rolling towards somewhere. But then we get to places, uh, well, I did do a lot of shows in Memphis, which is a great place for shows. People there are quite wonderful. And a lot of people there are familiar with you. And they would, you know, people would say, I went to school, I, you know, I went to school with Damien. I guarantee you he didn't do anything. Thank you so much for what you're doing. And he said, not only do I know that, we all do. And we all think this is unjust. Like everyone knows these guys are innocent, but we're just citizens. And at one point I, I did a show many years ago at this one place. Uh, and they brought Pamela Hobbs to talk to me parents, uh, the mother of one of the deceased boys. And all those Channel 7 vulture cameras are there waiting for the confrontation. And she's got her family with her. And some of these men are got some size to them. And I'm, I'm a polite person. I, and I, I, I never thought I'd meet, you know, this side of the, the argument. And so I said, ma'am, I'm very sorry for your loss. And we're not doing anything in an attempt to traumatize you. And if you think that, I'm so sorry, and you have no idea how, how badly I feel about what you've lost. And uh, Ms. Hobbs, you know, and, and, and now the camera's like, okay, okay, someone's going to hit somebody. And we have this very, <laughs> very decent conversation. It's very hot outside. 
the cameramen are getting tired of holding the camera. There's no drama. They're putting the camera down and taking a break because no one's getting hit, no one's being shoved. The DB level of the conversation isn't rising. And so I would move to do something. Everyone gets the camera. Here it goes. Here it goes. <laughs> and she said, you know, I've never been sure of their guilt and I want to thank you for doing what you're doing. I was like, wow, that's really strong. And that's when the cameramen were like, this is so boring. Mm. Uh, they wanted drama. And that's when I got, kind of sort of got an idea of the, just the racket that was around you guys. Yeah. And so here we are in 2012. You are a published author. And in many people's opinions here, myself included, uh, you are quite a good writer. Do you have plans for more books, perhaps articles, perhaps, perhaps being a, a contributor to anything from Harper's to NPR or Rolling Stone or anyone who would have you? Do you have uh, literary aspirations? I do. Uh, what I would hope, you know, like I said, I've always loved writing ever since I was a kid. So kind of what I hope for is that people will like the voice that they read in, in Life After Death enough that they would want to hear it talk about other things besides the case, besides prison. And, and that would allow me to write about other things, you know, other adventures in my life. You know, it's one of the things people always say is like whenever they read the book, they'll, they'll say, you devoted such a tiny little segment to the trial. And I always say, well, I'm almost 40 years old. That trial was 17 days out of 40 years. It's not the be-all and the end-all of my existence. So what I would like to do in the future is be able to write about other aspects of that existence, other things that interest me, other experiences I've had, in hopes that maybe people would find some sort of meaning in those also. And I'm pretty much open to anything, you know, more books, more magazine, magazine articles, whatever it is. I just love to write. And so the world, as a free man, as you are now, is your oyster. And there's nothing but potential. We are going to uh, open up uh, the audience uh, to some questions to, to Mr. Eccles here. Um, we're going to do about 15 minutes of questions. If we don't get to all of them, we apologize in advance. Um, if, so if anyone wants to ask a question, it's going to be very direct and personal. The microphone is right there. And so, Damien, if anyone chooses to come up, uh, they'll do that. And maybe you could direct your answers to everyone. And if you're going to ask a question, and please feel welcome to do so, um, perhaps make the question uh, as broad as possible to allow him to address all of us. Hi, thanks for coming. Um, my question is, how important to you personally is exoneration? Like, is that something that is just for your peace of mind, or will it affect the quality of your life? It's a great question. It's extremely important. Yeah, I mean, it'll, it would have a tremendous impact on quality of life. You know, right now, I've been fortunate enough in the past year, just enough people know about the case that it's allowed me to uh, survive in the world to at least make a living. But at the same time, you know, as years go by and, and people start to forget, you know, who I am more and more, it's harder and harder to make a living when you have a criminal record that shows three counts of murder. Uh, you know, most people aren't interested in employing someone like that. It's, you know, it reaches into so many aspects, not only of my life, but also Jason and Jesse's. You know, Jason is in school right now. He's enrolled in college. And what he eventually wants to do is become a lawyer and try to help people who are in the same situation that we were. Well, he can't even practice law until we're exonerated. 
Hi, thanks for coming out to talk to us. You, you touched a little bit on the extreme poverty that you lived in before this gross injustice happened to you. What do you think benefited you from your journey? How do you think maybe your life has evolved in a way it wouldn't have if this hadn't have happened? I think, you know, I always say that as much as we try to avoid it, as much as we want to get away from it, um, the number one thing that makes us grow as human beings is pain. It, it gives us a deeper ability to empathize with other people. It makes you stop and think more than you normally would. So as much as I don't like what I've been through, as much as I don't like the way I've been hurt, screwed up, and scarred in so many different ways, I do see what it has done for me. It's... Uh, I, you know, when I was growing up, I guess that level of poverty, I can sort of see the even the good parts of that now. You know, you grow up realizing the world isn't always an easy place, that a lot of times it's going to beat the hell out of you. So whenever you grow up like that, it, it sort of teaches you to roll with the punches a little better than, you know, if you had lived this normal, perfect, ideal life and then all of a sudden had it shattered into pieces one day. Thank you. I wanted to speak to your question about um, prison reform. I recently traveled to Norway for the first time and met family for the first time. And my cousin is a prison psychologist. He is in a minimum security prison. And he explained to me that in Norway, um, granted it's minimum security, so there are no doors on the cells, there are no bars on the cells, the prisoners are reformed. And I said, well, how does that happen? I mean, why don't they just leave? What keeps them there? And he said, the system is based on trust. And it was just so foreign to me to hear that, that what you're saying about reforming people Again, these are minimum security. These are not maximum. But it seems to me that we have to change the whole psyche of our country in order to change the system. And it's I just true. You know, a, a lot of, in society, it's almost like we're given this impression that prison, especially death row, is full of these, you know, criminal genius Hannibal Lecter types. And it's not true, you know, especially here in America, the average IQ of, of guys on death row is like 85. You have people there with even much lower than that, you know, down in the 60s. You have people there who are stark, raving, insane. You have people there with massive brain damage, brain trauma. You know, the most horrific case in Arkansas, the one that usually causes most people to feel just the most terror of the system is a guy that had shot himself in the head and gave himself a lobotomy but survived. And whenever they got ready to execute him, they ask him, what do you want for your last meal? He says, pecan pie. They give him the pie. He eats half of it. They come to get him to execute him. He wraps the other half up and says, I'm going to save this until after. He doesn't even comprehend that they're about to kill him. You know, there has to be something some other way to deal with situations like that other than just 
killing these people. Thank you. Uh, I wrote my question down because I feel like as a, even as a 33-year-old man, I'm going to start rambling in front of Henry Rollins. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, maybe, so, yeah, so my question is just, um, as someone who was on death row and had this really vibrant protest movement working for your release, um, what was your experience of perceiving those activists out in the world from the inside of death row? Um, was it ever a burden to imagine them? Was it always empowering, or was it ever completely disempowering? to imagine them out in the world with you being inside your cell? Most of the time it was incredibly empowering. The only time that I felt anything that even came close to bad, I started thinking of it a while ago when, when we were talking about the week that I was getting out and taking this deal. And you know, for me personally, I had been broken down to a point where I would have done pretty much whatever they wanted me to do if it meant getting home. But the one thing that does stick in your brain, that does nag in your brain, you know, just for example, at one point, we had to pay for all the DNA testing. The state wouldn't pay for anything. Well, we didn't have the money to do it. So Henry goes on a tour, does a tour just to raise money, to raise this $200,000 we need to do the DNA testing. So whenever this happens, whenever they come through with this deal, for yourself, you don't care. You're ready to do anything, ready to sign whatever they want you to sign. But you start thinking, what's Henry going to think? What's Eddie Vedder going to think? What's Johnny Depp going to think? You know, these people that have worked so hard for all these years, are they going to see this as a cop-out? Are they going to see this as breaking weak and giving up? Are they going to be disappointed in, in, in you making this decision? That's the only time that it started to feel a little bit like a burden or, or like a negative thing. Thank you. Actually, a decent follow-up, considering I don't know that guy. I was just wondering, when you were in prison and all of the celebrity activism was happening outside, and it's doing wonders for the case itself, did you find that there was a backlash against you within the system, as far as a guard who's like, oh, Eddie Vedder is all your best friend now, or whatever, mm. or other prisoners? Did you find that you were treated more harshly because of that That's at all? That's interesting. Yeah, it, it actually is. Not by the other prisoners. They don't care one way or another. You know, they're just trying to survive. But the guards, the way the prison operates, the only way it can operate the way it does is by doing it in complete secrecy. You will have huge riots going on in prisons everywhere in the U.S. at various times. You're never going to hear that on the news. You're never going to read about it in the newspaper because they want to keep it quiet. They feel that if this gets out, then it may make the prisoners feel like they've got a little more power, they've got a voice, something like that. So you have stuff like that going on all the time and you never even hear about it. Well, they felt that with these people who had a platform to speak out against this case, doing TV shows, doing you know newspaper uh, articles, doing magazine articles, whatever it was, they feel like I'm bringing attention not to my case, but to the prison. And they don't like that at all. So there was a lot of retaliation and retribution for that. Thank you. This is a great question. Um, hi, I was wondering, I heard that you've been doing a lot of uh, meditation and you've been um, inspired by Buddhism. So I was wondering whether you have found a reason why you've had to go through this experience in your life through that. I think it's just growth. I think the entire reason that each and every person is here in this life is to grow as human beings. Um, 
sometimes we have small experiences that make us grow tiny bits. Sometimes we have huge experiences that make us grow by leaps and bounds. Um, I, I try not to think about it too much. You know, honestly, that's the sort of thing that'll drive you nuts. You know, wanting to know the reason for things, wanting to know the purpose that lies behind it, because you're never going to know it. You know, you're not going to stumble across it in a book. No one's able to tell you what it is. You just think about it until you become like a dog chasing your own tail. The only thing you can do is let it go and try to take each day as it comes. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for being here. Um, in your book, which was extremely difficult to put down, you mentioned that um, you went to the bank and there was a photo or an artist's depiction of the house that you grew up in. Did you have any desire now to go back and buy it or retrieve it or anything like that? If I saw it, I wouldn't turn it down. But I don't know. It was a high school kid that painted this thing. Oh, really? So I don't know who this person was, whatever happened to this thing or anything else. The house is gone now. They completely leveled it, tore it down to the ground in order to make room for a subdivision. Mm -hmm. You know, that house, it was pretty, the, the time I spent there, my life there, it was pretty horrific. Right. But at the same time, I don't have much of anything from my previous life. You know, no photographs, no stories. I don't even really have contact with my family anymore. You know, my father left when I was about seven years old. I never saw him again until I was 17. My grandmother died while I was in jail waiting to go to trial, and she was like my mother. You know, she was the maternal figure in my family, so it's like... Everything is gone from back then. So I, it, it probably would be nice to have something to hold, something tangible, some sort of material possession, even though it was connected to such a horrific time period. Right. Thank you. Thanks. Sorry to be very direct, but out of all the suspects and theories out there, I want to know who you think of all the suspects committed this crime. Well... I always say I'm not the judge, I'm not the jury, I'm not the prosecutor. So I don't point the finger at anyone. I don't say this person did it or this person didn't do it. I prefer to let the evidence speak for itself, the science speak for itself. You know, there's so much out there now pointing towards another person that never existed pointing towards any of us. We have DNA evidence that links one of the stepfathers to the crime scene as well as the man who is providing that stepfather with an alibi. Terry Hobbs? Yes. Uh, he's always said he never saw any of the victims that day. We've had three eyewitnesses come forward who said they saw him with all three victims within an hour of the time they were murdered. Uh, we've, we've done other things that haven't panned out as far as results go, but that do still get us a little closer to a conclusion. For example, we tracked down the truck he had at the time the murders happened. He sold this truck before a month, you know, not even a month after the murders happened. We tracked that down. Finally, all the, the VIN numbers had been filed off of it. We did luminol testing. It's a form of testing that can show if blood has been spilled in a certain place. They found that there had been blood in the truck, but it was so old and so degraded it couldn't be typed, couldn't be placed. Did the same thing in the house where he used to live, and we found blood under the linoleum in the kitchen floor. But once again, it was so old and so degraded there was nothing we could do with it. There's a, a lot of evidence out there, not ghost stories, not hearsay, 
not rumors and fairy tales like they used against us, but actual, real scientific evidence that point towards this person. And it would be up to the, the, the integrity yes. of the state of Arkansas to pursue <laughs> those persons. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, it would be for him an endeavor that would require hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to exonerate himself. It would be, the weight is now on the state. And you and I, we can all look at Arkansas and say, do you value justice? Do you value honesty? If you do, then you will find the people who did this. If you don't care about dead children, then you'll just do nothing. And therefore, you shall be judged. And I've already made up my decision about Arkansas. And, I think a lot uh, of us have. In that, well, you are judged by what you do. And they are being judged by what they're not doing. Uh, and thank you for that. We're kind of sort of almost out of time. Uh, we're going uh, to take all the, you are the last three. Um, give us your questions and uh, we will memorize them and give answers to all three of them in this homogenized bit of wisdom from this man. <laughs> Quickly, um, I understand that you're a Catholic. Wondering if you've visited any of the cathedrals in New York City, specifically the one in the Bronx, and if maybe you've come to your senses and switched gears a little bit and are a Yankee fan instead of a Boston Red Sox fan. <laughs> Next. <laughs> uh, yeah, right, on a different note. Um, you spoke about the, the misjustice and how you were treated, and obviously you weren't there because you were supposed to be there, but um, how do you feel about the fact that people that actually were guilty of crimes are still getting treated the same way, going in, getting beaten down by... Uh, that sounds wrong in and of itself, not just because you were innocent, but you know, to me it sounds like well, this is no way for us to, to, to run um, a correctional system, and how do you feel about that? Mm. And yeah, we got it, and we'll answer it. And sure. my dear, I was just a bit overwhelmed to come up to take the courage to come and speak. Uh, your story, is, of course, is 18 times more. Werner Herzog's Dieter Dengler needs to fly. The man who was caught by the Viet Cong. Okay, my question is: There was a. I lived a few years in India, and you see a lot of injustice going on, where nothing is really done, and there's this frustration and anger that you see. There was this case of three innocent men who were put up in a prison and their eyes were burnt by acid by the jail wardens. And because I don't even know what their story is. And in your case, when you talk about the beatings and the injustice, and I just wondered how through this did you cope with the anger if you had that? How, what did you, how did it make you think about human apathy when it's going on and there is this like outright sociopathy going on even within the system and the crowds that the dark side of mankind, which neuroscience would prove the empathy connection missing in those gods and all. But how, how can you still be so optimistic? And it's just so beautiful. It's just like through it all, how can you still have this optimism and not be raging and have this anger at this, this system, this injustice you see or you saw? Anyway. Thank you. To try to put those two together, um, well, and they do, they do go together very well. Uh, the first question was about, well, you see this brutality. It's not doing anyone any good, innocent or guilty, the way inmates are being uh, treated. And as you said, one day they're getting out. Mm -hmm. And if you beat the hell out of these people for 15 years, then you let them out. What, what, what do they know to do with other people? Beat exactly. the hell out of them or worse. Exactly. And so that, that level of cruelty, 
that we exact upon fellow Americans, other humans. You know, what do you think about that? And in, in a way to cope with something torture you see happening in prisons, how do you remain optimistic in a situation like that, if you can, uh, in that where it looks so completely hopeless and so ghastly violent at, at times? So how do you make it better for these people? How do you, what do you do to the justice system? And how do you keep your spirits up when all around you is so flagrantly cruel and brutal? Well, I think uh, it goes back to what we were saying a while ago about having to get rid of this us versus them mentality, you know, as wanting to take retribution against these people for committing these crimes when we're talking about guilty people. That's natural. You know, most people are going to feel that way. Whenever you see something on the news or whenever something happens to someone near and dear to you, whatever it is, you're always going to feel that instant primitive urge to react and want this person to pay. But if you give into it, you're really screwing yourself in the end. You know, because like we were saying, they are going to get back out in the world one day. It would benefit everyone more if we focus our time, our energy, our money into a real rehabilitation program. Not just lip service, uh, but a real rehabilitation program that's actually going to change these people in some way, educate these people in some way, teach them empathy before bringing them back out onto the street. That's what it's going to require. For me personally, what got me through these things, really what it came down to was the meditation. The meditation and the energy work. You know, over the years, I had to learn things like Reiki, Qigong, just because, you know, there's almost no medical care in prison. They're not going to spend a lot of time and money and energy taking care of somebody they plan on killing. So whenever you get really sick and you're really in pain, that was the only way I had to deal with those things. The first couple of years I was there, the anger started to eat me alive. You know, from the moment you woke up in the morning, as soon as your eyes open, you're pissed off. You're thinking, these people have no right to do this to me. I don't belong here. And that just makes it even worse. You have to find some way to cope with it, to deal with it. And that's what led me to Zen meditation in the first place. It was through the Zen meditation that allowed you to remain optimistic enough to survive damn near 20 years and uh, not only as an innocent man in prison, but just a human in this yeah. utterly surreal circumstance. That's all the time we have. Ladies and gentlemen, this man is a published author. Um, I, the name of his book, Life After Death. Yes. The name of his book is Life After Death. For the five of you who have not read this book, Support the author so he can write his next one. Thanks for coming. Good night. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.